the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amin. Today is the fourth Sunday of the blessed month of Baba, and we read this morning from the Holy Gospel of St. Luke, the seventh chapter, which narrates to us the, the great miracle of our Lord raising from the dead the son of the widow of Nain. And we know that this is one of the three great miracles of raising the dead in the Gospels, the other one being the daughter of Jairus and Lazarus. And uh, we can, of course, begin by sort of entering into the scene of this very sad and difficult situation that this widow finds herself in. In those days, of course, a woman's total uh, dependence was on the man who was the, uh, the husband, father of the household, and we're told that she was a widow, and she had only one son. So for her to lose not only her husband, but her only son meant that she had no future, she had no livelihood, she had no hope. And on this um, uh, funeral procession, we see sort of this meeting between the funeral procession and another procession, which is Christ and his apostles. And we know that Christ has compassion on the woman. He touches the open coffin and he raises the son from the, from the dead. Um, I want actually just to begin sort of towards the end of the gospel where where the people proclaim saying, uh, a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. God's visitation is what I want to reflect a little bit with you about. Um, in a sense, this woman represents all of us that with, with, within ourselves and outside of ourselves, we find death and corruption is reigning. We find it in our members, we find it in the struggle we have with the passions. We find it in the world around us that everything seems to be under the sway of corruption. And everything ultimately is given over to death. And so in this pilgrimage that we are all on as members of the body of Christ, hoping to reach the kingdom of God, we, in a sense, are mourning, like this woman, the reality of death and corruption that is our experience within and without. And in that pilgrimage in which death abounds, we encounter the visitation of God. We encounter a penetration of life and of hope and of grace and love and mercy in the midst of this death and corruption. And this tension that we, we hold together between the death and the corruption which reigns within and without and the joy of the visitation of God. These things are sort of companions in our life. They can't be separated. We can't have one without the other. St. Paul, in the beginning of his second epistle to the Corinthians, begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in all our affliction. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. So both are there. Just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant, so likewise is the consolation of Christ also abundant 
They are held together. They are companions. And this is really the meaning of the word consolation. The word consolation itself, in a sense, literally means the joy that carries within it pain or springs out of pain. It's the joy that meets pain. It's the joy that comes and joins pain as a companion. And, and this is represented as, as, as most perfectly in the life of Christ himself. Christ is, a, is the man of sorrows, Isaiah tells us. But he is also full of joy, full of anticipation and hope, and the, 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 the joy of knowing who he is and the promises that he brings to the world from his Father. And that's why the church, the scriptures, of course, and the church insist on the, the title of the Comforter, the Consoler, the Holy Spirit, because he is our sort of divine guest who dwells within us. He is our companion. He is the one who, who brings the good tidings of joy in the midst of the death and the corruption that reigns within and without. He is the, the giver of life, we say in the prayers of the church. And so this is our pilgrimage. This is, the, this is the journey that all of us are on, and a pilgrim knows not only where he's going, but he knows who he is. And so the pilgrim is in the midst of this um, world of pain and sorrow and death and corruption, and yet because he knows his identity and he knows his destination, he has the joy also abounding within. And so, in a sense then, how do we, how do we live and how do we further this experience of both joy and the sorrow? Well, first of all, the death to the self, the voluntary death to the self, is the, the primary means by which we experience this joy. We don't sort of passively wait for it, but we go to meet it, right? like this procession this morning that, that we read about in the gospel. There's a movement. We are, this death and corruption which is within is, un, is in, a, in a pilgrimage and a movement to meet life, to meet joy. And this means that we have to voluntarily accept that our calling in this life is to be dead to the temporal things of this world, and the words of St. Paul is to have our mind and our hearts in the heavenly places, not on earthly things. The incorruptible, not the corruptible, the heavenly, not the earthly, the eternal, not the temporal, as we say, and the litany of the oblations. Um, perhaps in the past I, I mentioned a wonderful movie called Of Gods and Men. It's about a, uh, a monastery in Algeria that was in the midst of a predominantly Muslim um, village or town, and this whole area came under the uh, occupation of the Islamic fundamentalists, and they warned the, the monks of the monastery, it was a Catholic monastery, they warned them that they would give them time to leave before they would kill them. And all the monks decided they would meet and, dis and decide who would stay and who would go, and all the monks decided they would stay that they had given their life to serve this community, this non-Christian community, that they were physicians that were serving them medically, that they were providing for the poor through the, the means that the monastery had, that they were giving comfort to the villagers, and that they would not abandon these villagers even at the, uh, the threat of death. And so one of the young um, novices 
one of the young monks, he went to the abbot and in a very human way, in a very vulnerable way, he said, I don't want to lose my life. I don't want to lose my life. And the abbot responded, and this is a very beautiful scene in the movie, he says, you already gave your life. You already gave your life. By accepting to be a Christian, you already offered your life. By coming to the monastery, you already are dead to the world and to yourself. And this is really the message for all of us, right? That if we've already voluntarily accepted death, if we've already voluntarily died to ourselves and to the temporality of, of this world, then life is the response, life is the reward, life is the, the joy that meets us. So we live to the extent that we die. We possess God to the extent that we detach ourselves from earthly things. This is a spiritual law. It's not something, it's, it's just there as a law for all of us to abide by and experience. Right? It's a hypothesis to test, if you will. We possess God to the, to the extent that we depossess or detach ourselves from all earthly things. And so in a sense then, everything that's corruptible within us, everything that is ultimately leading to death, needs to meet Christ, needs to be touched by Christ, needs to be visited by God in order to be transformed and transfigured. Um, one of the Orthodox uh, priests who, who runs a blog, he, he, um, he said in one of his homilies, and I'm just going to quote a part of, of it as it relates to this story, he says, we weep and mourn not only for loved ones whom we see no more, but also for the brokenness and disintegration that we know all too well in our own souls, the lives of our loved ones, and the world around us. So we weep for the, the corruptibility of, of everything. He says, death, destruction, and decay in all their forms are the consequences of our personal and collective refusal to fulfill our vocation to live as those created in the image of God by becoming like him in holiness. We weep with the widow of Nain not only for losing loved ones, but also for losing what it means to be a human person as a living icon of God. So this death to the self is not just a death to the world and to earthly things, but it's a, it's a repentance that I offer not only on behalf of myself, but I weep on behalf of the whole world that has lost its way, that has rejected that image and likeness that we're all called to fulfill in our lives. Each one of us bears the, the pain of that rebellion against God, if you will. But God, in a sense, the word that he gives us, the consolation that he gives us, as we said, on this journey, on this pilgrimage, is joy. It is the gift that he accompanies us at all moments of our life. It's the surprise, the wonder that meets us unexpectedly. And this is, this is in, in a sense, the difference maybe between joy and happiness. Happiness is so predictable in the sense that happiness depends on very specific things lining up. If I am doing well at work, if I'm not fighting with my spouse, if my kids are not arguing with me, if my finances are in order, I can sort of predict what happiness looks like. But what is, where does joy come from? Joy comes unexpectedly. Joy comes as a surprise because it's a gift. We can only look for it, anticipate it, wait for it because it's a gift from God. And so, um, very beautifully, I'll relate a couple of stories from um, two priests uh, who were together um, 
in the same situation in communist Romania. Um, both of them were imprisoned uh, with slightly different circumstances, but they were both monks who were imprisoned during the communist control of Romania, and they were placed in one of the worst um, prison camps called Pitest. Pitest was a sort of what they called a re-education camp. They didn't simply kill you, they wanted to reprogram you. That was the whole idea. The, the communists much preferred to take somebody who was religious, who had certain ideology that believed in God and the Gospels and so on, and reprogram him and then present him back to the world as see, look, look at the product of communism. So it was not just torture, but it was brainwashing. It was all kinds of um, terrible um, things that they did to them in, in this prison. You can find documentaries and books written about it. But one of them, his name is Father Roman Braga. He just passed away. Some, actually, both of them just passed away in the last 10 years, I believe. Um, and he, I'll just re read to you something that he said in an interview about his experience. He said, what I do know is that we will never reach the same spiritual level of life as in communist imprisonment. There was no pencil, no paper, nor t no TV, nothing, especially in solitary confinement. So he spent 11 years in prison and three of those years in solitary confinement, just in a small little box for three years. You could not even look through a window. There was no exterior horizon, nothing but the four walls of your cell. You had to go somewhere. You had to find an inner perspective because otherwise you would truly go crazy. I'm ashamed to say that I was forced to find myself in prison. I had some ideas about prayer, but it was mostly theory about what prayer is. But there is those difficult moments, I confess, that I started to recite the Jesus prayer and practiced it intensely. Only then was I able to discover how beautiful the interior life of man is. I liked it very much. And then he says, when God speaks to you, he does not use material words, but brings you joy. I experienced such joys in prison. I could not detach myself from them. I was never interested when they brought me food or whatever else from the human perspective. So he is in this prison. He has nothing other than to just go within himself and pray. And the greatest gift that he receives there is the discovery of true prayer and the surprise and the wonder of joy. God didn't speak to him or appear to him in visions and give speeches to him, but he gave him the gift of joy. And this is the speech that God most wants to speak to us with. So when we ask, what is, what is that I'm supposed to take from God in prayer? What is it I'm supposed to take from God in my struggle? What should I hear from him? Most perfectly, we want that surprise of joy. In the Psalms, Psalm 10, uh, 10 for example, we read the cry of the human soul, which says, why do you stand so far off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times, of, in times of trouble? Is this not a cry that speaks to your heart and my heart? Why are you so distant? Why are you so far off? Why are you hiding in the midst of my affliction and my sorrow? This is the epitome of, of the human experience. And even when God does act, or even when he doesn't seem afar off, we're still confused by the injustice of everything. Nothing seems in this world to, to perfectly make sense, even when God sometimes acts. And this becomes the problem that has, um, 
has been on the minds of philosophers from thousands of years before, and it's the one that most people today still use to argue against how could a good God allow bad things to happen and so on to good people or to innocent people. It's, it's, the, it's the legitimate question that each one of us asks that tries to make sense out of. The problem, though, is that we want some sort of generic answer. We want some sort of generic pattern that we can say, this is why this suffering exists for this child or for this woman or for this man. And we never find that pattern. We never find that sort of copy-paste that works. It's not satisfying. So what do we do? The, the reality is, is that the answer to my suffering is something personal between me and my Lord. It's something secret. It's something intimate. It's something that I must discover in my relationship with him. It doesn't belong to you. And your secret and your discovery of why whatever it is that you're going through today or this last year or the last 20 years of your life or what you will experience tomorrow belongs to you. It's something in the intimacy of that relationship between you and God for you that he will give you in the, in the right time and in the right way. And it will only make sense to you. It won't make sense to anybody else. You can't copy and paste it. You can't copy and paste it. This is expressed very beautifully by a Greek bishop. His name is Metropolitan Nicolaus. Metropolitan Nicolaus is, is a unique person in that he's a brilliant person. He has like a PhD in astrophysics from Harvard and MIT. And, and at the same time, he was this humble monk that went to Mount Athos and lived with elders. And, and, and listen to what he says about this question, this why me God. He said, if someone else gives us his supposedly correct answer, he will destroy the variety and the individuality of our own answers, sacred answers, which God holds in, holds in store for each one of us. The supposed wisdom of a wise man will destroy the truth and freedom of God within us. The ex to expect an answer from others is a great mistake. What wise man, what enlightened person, what philosopher, what priest, secure in the rectitude of his arguments, knows the answer to the wise which are so personal? The answer can be discerned only within ourselves. The answer does not exist somewhere. No one knows it. The answer arises within us. Our own answer is God's gift to us. Suffering cannot be responded to with arguments, nor can injustice and death be met with reasoning. These problems are resolved only by receiving the divine breath of God, or maybe today we could call it the visitation of God. They are resolved through the Holy Spirit. They are overcome through a humble acceptance of God's will, which is so true, but at the same time, usually so incomprehensible. Ultimately, we can pose the question, but we must await the response. Either God does not exist, or he allows a trial in order to give us a unique opportunity. If the crucifixion had not occurred, there would have been no, no resurrection. Christ would have been a good teacher, but not God. God gives the opportunity. It remains for us to recognize it and make use of it. The joy and the depth of potential of this opportunity are far greater than the intensity and the pain of the trial. Unfortunately, it is an undeniable truth that we acknowledge and gain the greatest things only when we lose what we love above everything else. Certainly, pain and injustice cannot abolish God's love. God exists. He is love and life, perfect love and the fullness of life. And the greatest miracle of his existence is that he coexists with pain, injustice, and death. Perhaps the greatest challenge for each of us is to coexist 
with our personal suffering, to hold tight these deeper whys in a hopeful embrace, and to humbly abandon ourselves into the hands of God precisely through the injustices we believe he does to us. So he, he touches on, of course, the importance of faith, right, as that, as that environment to prepare for the joy, for the encounter, right? You know the story of the, the woman with the issue of blood for, she had an issue of blood for 12 years, the flow of blood for 12 years, and again, there's sort of this procession, Christ with a lot of people around him, and this woman sort of weaves her way through the crowd, and she touches just the hem of his garment, and she's healed. And Christ stops in the midst of this crowd, and he turns, and he says, who touched me? And his apostles say, there's a throng of people around you, and you ask who touches you? He said, what, I felt what? Power go out from me. So think about that. Faith, what is it, what is it that healed her? Was it the touch? Huh? Faith. The, the, the touch just sort of announced it. But her faith drew power from Christ. You say, well, that's obvious. But, but think about that. Her faith drew power from Christ. In the midst of all of those people, God felt power go out of him into a human being. Because that human being had some faith. So the question then becomes is, where is the power? It's in the faith. You draw that power from God. It's, it's, like, it's like God himself is surprised. God is like, wait, where did this, where did this power go from me to? Like, where, who, who took this power from me? It's, it's as if we have control even over God to, to take the power from him by our faith. What a beautiful strength we have. How glorious is the gift of faith. It usurps that power that belongs solely to God. So how do, we, how do we avoid missing the visitation? How do we, how do we prepare ourselves in that environment of faith that, that also removes some of these obstacles for the surprise of joy? Well, number one, if we look at all the miracles in the Gospels, Many of these people were in very pitiful situations, right? We, the blind man born blind from his birth, the paralyzed man 38 years, all of these people should have been very bitter in their life because they were not only crippled and blind and, and, and maimed, but they were despised. They were rebuked for being sinners. If any one of us was in that position, we could have easily become the most bitter, resentful people on the earth. And when Christ walked by and said, do you want to be made well? We would have said, get the heck away from me, right? Because we would have been filled with that bitterness and that resentment. But all of them were, 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 were they, they, they remained in a sort of state of humility. And they, they were able to accept the visitation. Bitterness closes us off from the surprise of God. Another one is fear, right? What does fear do? Very simply, fear sort of rivets all of our energy, all of our attention, all of our thoughts, all of our sentiments and emotions and feelings on that one thing that we fear. It makes us sort of myopic. We can only look at one thing. We can only think of one thing. It's like if right now, if somebody comes and breaks my, my finger, 
Can I think of anything else except what? The pain of my finger. All of my attention is in that pain. So fear has that, that, that ramification of drawing all of our energy, all of our attention, all of our, our feelings and sentiments into the thing that we fear. And then we're blind to, to the visitation of God. We're blind to Christ who is passing by. We're blind to the joy that he wants to bring us, the surprise of joy. And then the third one that I would suggest to you is discouragement. Discouragement as many of the saints um, say, is the downfall of, of all souls. It's the beginning of the end for each one of us when we become discouraged because ultimately leads to spiritual despair. And so we have to remember that in the lives of the saints, you know, sometimes we take a snippet, we take 80 years, 90 years, 50 years of a saint's life and we put it in a paragraph or we put it in a 200-page book at most or we put it in a two-hour movie and what do we focus on? We focus on all the gifts of the saint and all the miracles of the saint and all of the, the wonderful things that happened to the saint. But as one spiritual father, he said, he said, if the biographies of the saints included their faults, included their falls, included their sins, included their weaknesses, the biographies would be twice as long. Right? It's a, it's a comforting thought that their, their true biographies are twice as long as what we read because we take out oftentimes these weaknesses and faults that they themselves struggled with, including the sins that they fell in. That's why the Bible is so beautiful, because it doesn't hide the faults of all of the great figures that God calls uh, to be part of his plan. So discouragement, we have to be completely uh, aware of its um, uh, subtleness, the whisper of the devil who tells us, you know, just give up, you keep trying, you keep falling, it's never going to work for you, God is going to get tired of you, right? But again, think about those three virtues that St. Paul talks about, what? Faith, hope, and love. He says these are the three greatest virtues. So one of the saints, he said, can you ever have too much faith? Can you ever have too much faith? Can you ever have too much love? Then can you ever have too much hope? But what does the devil tell us? He says, yes, there's a limit to your hope. If you fell 10 times, there's a limit. The 11th time is really bad. The 12th time, that's it. The door is shut. But there is no limit to hope, just as there is no limit to faith and there is no limit to love. We, we cannot judge the character of God by our own weaknesses, which have limits as to how many times we can forgive one another. Let me end with, um, I mentioned two priests in the Romanian prison camp of Pitest. The first one was Father Roman Braga. The second one, his name is Father George Calciu. Father George Calciu relates similarly to Father Roman, something beautiful from his experience in the prison that I want to read. And we'll end with this story. He says, during my imprisonment, I served the Holy Liturgy every Sunday from memory. So as a priest, he had the prayers of the liturgy memorized. So to keep himself sane in the prison, he would, and to keep himself, of course, engaged in spiritual activities, he would recite and pray the divine liturgy by himself in the cell. He says, at first, the guards insulted me and beat me to make me give it up. I held fast, and at last, they left me alone. To their way of thinking, I was crazy. 
It was one Sunday and I was isolated. It was one of the days without food and I couldn't serve the divine liturgy because I had no bread. On that Sunday, I asked the Lord to help me forget my sadness at the impossibility of serving the holy liturgy for lack of bread. Nevertheless, a thought came to me to ask the guard for some bread. The most evil of the guards was on duty and I knew that my request would make him angry and, would ins and he would insult me and would probably beat me and ruin the peace that I had in my soul for that day. But the thought persisted and grew so strong that I knocked on the iron door of the cell. A few minutes later, the door was violently opened and the furious guard asked me, what is the matter? I asked him for a piece of bread, no more than just one ounce to use for serving the holy liturgy. My request seemed totally absurd to him. It was so unexpected that his mouth dropped open in astonishment. He left slamming the door as violently as he had opened it. Many other hungry prisoners asked him for bread, but I was the first to ask for bread in order to serve the divine liturgy. I began to regret my impulse, apprehensive about what would happen next. 20 minutes later, the door of my cell opened halfway and quietly the guard gave me the ration for a whole day, four ounces of bread. He shut the door as quietly as he opened it. And if it had not been whole, and if I had not been holding the bread, I would have thought it was all an illusion. The holy liturgy I celebrated with that bread was the most profound and most sublime holy liturgy I ever experienced in my life. The service was two hours long, and the guard did not disturb me or insult me as he did at other times. Later, after I had finished the liturgy and the fragrance of the prayer was still in my cell, the door opened quietly and the guard whispered, Father, don't tell anyone I gave you the bread or you will ruin me. I responded to him, how could I tell this to anybody, Mr. Mr. First Sergeant? You acted as an angel of God because the bread you gave me became the body of Christ and your deed is now recorded in eternity. Without answering, he quietly shut the door, looking at me until the last moment. After that, he never insulted me and during his eight hours of duty, I had the most peaceful time of my imprisonment. And this is the part I want you to focus on. He says, I have related this double aspect of my confinement, the suffering and the divine consolation, to make you understand that God secretly balances our lives. If we have God, we shall never collapse. We shall never collapse from the pain of this world. During our most atrocious suffering, we suddenly discover oases of light and sacred joy. If the world oppresses us, then Jesus comforts us. If we are sad, our joy is in Jesus. God secretly balances our lives, and we shall never collapse from the pain of this world. May we be like Father Roman, Father George, and all of the great examples who have gone before us. Let us be open and receptive to that wonder of joy that God wants to bring us in the midst of this valley of, the, of, of, the, of death and the, the valley of tears that we walk on until we reach our promised land, the kingdom of God. And to him be all glory now and forever and to the age of all ages. Amen.